good. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You can turn there. I'm really, I'm really loud. Am I in the monitors or something? Yeah. Hey, uh, I'll pass on to you a couple updates too on just uh, some different things that we've been praying about. Maybe just up a little bit, Ivan, just to be a pain. Um, uh, first one is this, is uh, Rini's dad had a successful bypass surgery on Thursday, five bypasses. And, uh, and so praise the Lord, what an answer to prayer, you know? Two weeks ago, found slumped over in the front seat of his car and the AED. And so praise the Lord that they, you know, that he's just recovering and doing well. And Rini's coming home today. Uh, the other one is this. Um, for those that are on the, on the prayer vine, hey, if you're interested in being on the prayer vine, uh, just an email chain that we send out when there's items of prayer. Jerry, Jerry's father-in-law was on there. And then also uh, Simon Eady, Ben and Amy's little guy, uh, the second oldest, had a fall at school out there in uh, East Kalimantan, Indonesia, and he broke his elbow. And um, so they flew to Jakarta. Amy and him flew to Jakarta to get care. He could not be taken care of in Jakarta because it was serious enough that uh, they had to go to Singapore where they could have a procedure done to get it all back together. And so Amy and Simon are in Singapore. They're there for, I think, another week. Ben's at, at home with the three little ones. The different missionary families are helping them out. He's, they have guests coming from their church in Prince George, whom Ben is now hosting. And, um, and Simon, I think, has to have a second procedure. Is that, is that right, Mom? Yeah, no movement in the arm ever if they hadn't got to Singapore. And so they just need our prayers because obviously huge complications in terms of insurance. I mean, it, these things should be taken care of, but you can imagine the nervousness about that. It was like they needed written reports in Jakarta. Well, they couldn't, they couldn't even barely communicate with the doctors, so they were just taking photos of the, doc, the medical reports and then going to Singapore and uh, the, whole, the whole deal. And so... Um, Anyways, uh, it looks like things are good, but we'll just keep Simon in prayer. And uh, yeah, so, hey, God's word. First Corinthians chapter three, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for, I thank you for little Simon and the Edie family, Lord. We, we thank you that they could get out to, to Singapore and he could have that surgery before things were totally frozen up with that elbow. And uh, God, we just pray for your healing for them. We pray, God, that you would... Um, be with Ben just as he's looking after the other kids and hosting guests and, um, and Amy's in Singapore with Simon and Lord we pray that you just uh, yeah just be with them Lord and comfort them uh, with your presence Jesus and Lord we thank you just for the way you touched Jerry Edgecombe and he's got through all this heart stuff and we just see that your hand in that Lord and we bless you for that we thank you for that and God as we come to your word this morning uh, we just ask that you would feed us, Lord, 
that we would find your word to be milk and honey and meat and our bread, our manna from heaven, that our spirits would be fed, Lord, as we uh, consider these things this morning, as we look at the words of Paul. And we just ask that your spirit would speak to your church today, Lord, that every one of us would be drawn to Jesus, that this written word would point us to the living word, and we would grow in, in our depth and knowledge of our Savior. And so, uh, Lord, would you just move us into maturity, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Paul has been in this discussion uh, in this early part of 1 Corinthians on really wisdom, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world. And in that discussion, in particular, in the last chapter, Paul made reference to two types of people. He called them the natural man and the spiritual man, meaning the unsaved person and the saved person, the person who is spiritually dead and the person who has been born again, made alive unto God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, a work of the spirit. And that was chapter two that, that Paul said, I could preach the gospel to you and I, I didn't have to use any technique, I could just proclaim the gospel and trust that the spirit would make it alive to your heart because that's the only way someone can come into the kingdom is by the work of the spirit. So the natural man and the spiritual man. Now, as we come to chapter three, Paul's going to introduce us to two types of believers. He's going to talk about mature believers and immature believers Mature in the sense, uh, those who live for spiritual things, who live with the values of the kingdom, and immature in the sense of those who are carnal, they're fleshly in their faith, though they're believers, they're living with the value system and for the value system in many ways of this world. And so let's check this out. First Corinthians chapter three, verse one, it says this, but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. These are believers. We know that because Paul calls them brothers, first of all. He refers to them as people who are in Christ. And though they're a part of the family of God, though they've been born again by a work of the Spirit, he says there's a problem in a sense here. And it was this that Paul could not address them as spiritual but rather as people of the flesh, those who were, he calls them infants in Christ. And of course, you know, I just think, well, of infancy in Christ, we talk about baby Christians. Of course, one reference to that is really obvious that someone who's a new believer is an infant in Christ. They're a baby Christian. I, I, I look, you know, I hear these, these babies in the room. Isn't it awesome? Babies are awesome in the family of God. Not just physical babies, but spiritual babies. They're really important to the health of a body. And so there's that type of infancy, someone who's new to the faith. But that is not the type of infancy that Paul is addressing here as he talks about this church. And he calls them infants, fleshly, those who are carnal. He's, he is addressing people who have been following Jesus for some period of time in their lives. They've been, they've been following Christ, but their maturity and faith has been stunted. There's, there's a 
developmental delay or something going on. It's not, it's not happened. They have not reached the expected spiritual progress, and they seem to be stuck in infancy, as Paul writes to them. And the reason for their immaturity, we're going to see, was really two things. It was in relationship to two things, the world and the word. And in regards to the world, Paul says the reason for their immaturity was that they were living as people of the flesh. Uh, that, that word flesh can be translated carnal. You know, we, you hear that old saying, carnal Christian. I once had a discussion with somebody who said, is there such thing as a carnal Christian? There is, because Paul says right here at 1 Corinthians, they were living with worldly value systems, fleshly value systems, and they were people, they were believers who had all the potential for growth in the world. They'd received Christ. They'd been born again. They'd been given uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe they were warming a seat in the, the, the worship gatherings of the church each, each week. But they were living a carnal life still, dominated by the urges of the flesh, dominated by the inclinations and the tendencies and the desires of their flesh. You know, um, I, I love babies. That's just how I am. My, my wife and I joke about it and I tease her, you know, if we would have had, if we could have had, if I could have talked to her into more babies, we would have had more babies. And so I live vicariously through the children of our church in a sense. And I'm sure there's lots of you who do that. Babies are awesome. Awesome to see Florence Faith here. The baby shower for Israel this afternoon. But you know, um, that said, if we as adults thought, wow, at CTK, they really love babies. I'm going to dress up in a onesie, you know. <laughs> I'm going to suck my thumb. I'm going to bring my soother to church. We would know that there's something wrong with you. You might get carted away. Because adults should not act like babies. There should be maturity. And there was something wrong in the Corinthian church. And it, it's a problem that's been in the church throughout all ages. It dominates the church of our age. And, and that, that's this, that believers get stuck in infancy and they don't move on to maturity. They don't get involved in ministry. Instead, instead they display the behavior of spiritual infants, carnal Christians. I think we live in a, in a culture where, uh, in particular, the, the church gets stuck this way because of, because of the prosperity of our culture and, and the standard of living that we have. And so that was the problem in Corinth, stuck in infancy. And so Paul says this in verse 2, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh. You know, baby's not born with teeth. Baby's not born with the skill to operate a steak knife and run the barbecue. Um, instead, a baby has a diet of milk. And in the milk is all the nourishment that they need. And as the stomach matures, you know, as a parent, you, you introduce your child to discussing things like mush peas and sweet potatoes and all the things that they have to eat, those bland foods, until that child develops and grows and has teeth and the ability to, to eat meat. 
And the same is true spiritually speaking, Paul says here, that there is a process that people go through spiritually in maturity, moving from infancy into um, adulthood or maturity in the Lord. And he says that when you're an infant in Christ or a carnal Christian, you need milk. You need milk. Now, in, in the Bible, the word of God is described in many places as milk. You know, we were doing a Bible study a, a couple weeks back uh, with, with uh, my guys that I meet with on Tuesday night. And we were looking at the concept of the word of God as milk. And it was unbelievable how many New Testament references there were referring to um, the word of God as milk. Peter said this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. He says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into your salvation if indeed that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Paul addressing those who were carnal and fleshly in their faith um, said, you're not growing up because of your relationship to the word. Because of the way that you deal with the milk of God's word. You know, you could come to church on Sunday. You can worship. You can put your tithe in the offering. You can raise your hands during worship. But on Monday morning, you go back out into the world and you have this issue in your life, so to speak. Too much of the world to really enjoy the Lord. And too much of the Lord to really enjoy the world. And you get stuck in this place of... Developmental delay, infancy. And infancy means that you can only receive milk. You can only take in the milk of God's word. And, and like a baby, you know, somebody has to pamper you. Somebody has to burp you. Someone has to feed you. Someone has to counsel you and explain things to you. And the infant doesn't seem to know what it means, as Paul talks here, to what it means to to open up the word of God and to learn to feed yourself from the word of God. To seek the Lord, to walk with him day by day, to feed on the word of God. And Peter said it in the verse that I read, we grow up in our salvation when we begin to taste and see that God is good. And you have to get a, a taste, so to speak, of God. A taste of his word a taste of his presence and develop a craving, a desire for his word and for to have him speak to you and learn to feed on the word. It's not so much, you know, when we, when we think of the Christian life, you think, wow, it's about effort. I need to put in effort. It's not about effort. It's about appetite. We sang this morning, actually, I want more of you, God. I have an appetite for you, so I will seek you. Not about effort, about appetite. And so again, Paul says in verse 2, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. One of the marks of maturity in your faith is what you feed on. The word of God is our, our food. It's it's milk. The scripture is called bread. It's called meat. It's even pictured as, 
as honey that tastes good in the Bible. And your inner man needs the diet of spiritual food so that you can mature and develop and grow in your appetite for a more mature diet. Get the meat of the word. You know, when you consider maturity in someone's life, it's not hard to determine a person's maturity in their faith. If you look at their diet and you look at what they feed on spiritually, you can see where maturity is. Like I said, it's not an issue of effort in the Christian life. It's an issue of appetite. And we must taste and see that the Lord is good and learn to feed on the word of God. Our milk, our meat, our manna, our bread from heaven. Now, spiritual infancy manifests certain behavior. It displays itself in certain behavior. And so Paul begins to point it out. Check out verse 3. He says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And so he says, here's some signs of, of infancy in your life. Here's how I know you're an infant in your faith. The jealousy and the strife that's in your life that's happening amongst you in the church. You know, you'll always know a carnal church because a carnal church will fight amongst itself. It'll have factions like the Corinthians did. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. It'll, it'll, it'll have this, you know, different parties and groups in there and there'll be division. You know, he says, you'll, you'll, there'll be jealousy. You'll want something else. It'll lead to strife. You, you'll, you'll find reasons to find things wrong with the church. It'll create division. You'll be looking for something that you can't be satisfied with. And that was what was happening in the Corinthian church. Jealousy, strife, division. Probably if you've been kicking around the church throughout your Christian life for many years, you've experienced that or seen those things in churches. Maturity expresses itself in love. Loving one another. Learning to get along with one another. And the Corinthian church was, had this party spirit, so to speak, where they were divided into factions about different leaders and who they were following and which preacher was the greatest. You know, it reminded me as I was thinking about it, it reminded me of those schoolyard conversations when I was young. My dad's tougher than your dad. My dad makes more money than your dad. My dad, you know, and, and that's what kids do. It's a, it's a mark of immaturity that they do that in their lives. And immature Christians, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. My dad's tougher than your dad. Paul says in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord is assigned to each. You know, Paul says, both of us, myself and Apollos, we're just servants of the Lord. You know, Paul came to Corinth as a missionary. He proclaimed Christ and him crucified. He preached, he preached the gospel and the church was born. And Apollos came later and he preached Christ and him crucified and the church was built up. I mean, they were both servants of the Lord. Both playing on the same team. Both 
serving the same king, not striving against one another, but working for the benefit of the body of Christ. And, and Paul is making this church as he, as he talks about all of these things of wisdom and the natural man and the spiritual man and the mature and the immature, he is making this body of Christ begin to look in the mirror and, and face the sin and the carnality and the fleshliness that was in their lives, the immaturity. And what I, what I love about Paul is that he's not angry. He's speaking the truth in love. He's telling them these things. And once again, like we're going to see so many times in 1 Corinthians, he will begin to point them to their identity of who they truly are. So they live up to the calling. They move into maturity in the Lord. You know, in the, the first message in this series in 1 Corinthians, I told you about my little dog. Do you remember that? She's seven pounds. And when she's bad, she gets garbage out of the garbage can. And she takes it under my bed in my bedroom. And she leaves it there and chews it all up. Well, uh, last night we went out for dinner. And I got home, and my little seven-pound mutt had ripped open a garbage bag, and uh, there was some pizza, and it was on the stairs, and there was some stuff over by the fireplace in the living room, and in my bedroom there was garbage. It was under my bed, and I, I was about ready to kill that dog <laughs> last night. And, you know, but the funny thing, you know, we joke in our house, I say this about our dog, I... I I do a little funny skit with the kids about the dog, and I say she has OCGS, obsessive compulsive garbage sniffing. <laughs> and, and once in a while, she gets into the garbage because she's a dog, and she acts like a dog if I set her up to act like a dog, like leaving garbage out, my children. She's just acting like a dog. And the church um, was immature, and so it acted immature, Surprise. You know, I think sometimes as, as the church, we look at the world and we go, what's wrong with the world out there? They're so sinful. Yeah, they're sinners. Sinners sin. You know, dogs eat garbage if you give them the opportunity. Immature Christians will act immature if they don't move on to infancy. You should not... Be surprised by the behavior, but expect the behavior. You know, it's like on, on the first birthday, you give the kid the bowl of cake and the ice cream, and what do you expect to happen? Most of it's not going to go in the mouth. You, you know, it's going to be all over the face. It's going to be on the floor. You're going to be smearing ice cream like this. The bowl will eventually go on the head. It's a guarantee. And you'll be snapping photos because you expect that from your baby. And, and Paul wasn't surprised by this behavior. Uh, it doesn't mean, you know, he didn't want it. So, so what he does is he, he says, let's not kick the dog. Let's not scold the baby. Let's remind the church of who she is called to be. Who is she? And he's going to use three images in this text that are just awesome. They're this. God's garden, God's building, God's temple. So you're Christ. You are God's possession. 
And God's desire for you is not low-level Christian living. God's desire for you is not a, a, a life divided, split between serving this world and serving his kingdom. God wants you, as your father, to grow beyond infancy into maturity. To be a laborer. To be a disciple in his kingdom. To overcome a stunted spiritual life and to advance in the Lord into maturity. And so three metaphors to help the church catch the vision for maturity. The first is this, God's garden. Look at verse six. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You know, um, his garden, actually, it can be translated. You're his field. It, it means he cultivates you. A cultivated field. You know, every year, I, uh, I have this dream of farming or I don't know. Not just farming, but just have a, a little bit of success planting some things in my yard and receiving a bit of a crop from it. And, you know, we haven't had much success at this particular house where we are. I think some of it's, you know, uh, our location. We just don't seem to have a, a, a great property to get carried away with gardening. But secondly, we have this gang that roams our neighborhood, four-legged vermin, who, who off-coast people think are really cute. But those who live here know the reality. You know, I've had up to nine of those deer, those fuzzy deer in my yard. And I know when they've come through. I'm waiting for them any day because all of my hostas are doing really well. So they should be munched to the ground at any time. Not that I'm bitter. You know, I find a lot of joy in cultivating plants. You know, planting planting things. And so what we've, what we've done at our house is we go, well, we got to go on the deck. So it's, it's limited, you know, we can have a few, few different pots going. And, uh, this year I'm growing peas, you know, some snow peas, some snap peas. And every day I check them. Oh, I like to go out there and look at them and look at the growth and look where the little suckers are going and train them onto the, the netting so that they're going in the right direction. And, you know, Think about the Lord. He says, you are my garden. It's amazing that God began his relationship with man where? In the garden. Where in the cool of the day, he would walk with Adam and Eve and they'd talk about life and talk about the things of God and grow in their relationship. And I'm sure they talked about the garden and the plant life and the Lord taught them things and they enjoyed friendship with one another. And Paul says to this immature church, he says, you're God's garden. He, he's cultivating you. He, he's, he's working in your life. You're his, his field. And the fact that he calls him the, the field or the garden of God just suggests that God, God toils on behalf of his people. He, he works, he cares for you, he cultivates you so that he can bring forth fruit from your life. And like your garden at home, there has to be plowing. 
the turning over the soil. There has to be sowing and watering for there to be a harvest. And God uses his servants to do that work. Paul, Paul says, you know, I planted, Apollos watered. We were working towards the same goal. We were working for God and, and for his garden. And we couldn't do anything to make the garden grow. Yet we sowed the seed and we watered, but God brought the growth, not us. You know, seed is an amazing thing. You can't make seed grow. I mean, you provide the right conditions. You, could, you try to control the environment. You make sure the soil is healthy and water and that there's sunlight. And I mean, you, you work to have the right conditions, but you can't make it grow. God makes it grow. Remember the parable of the sower? A man went out to sow the seed, which Jesus said is the word of God. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and the birds of the air came and snatched it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where there wasn't much soil. And though it sprung up out of the ground quickly, it, it had very little soil and the roots didn't have much depth. And so when the sun came out and scorched them, the plants withered and died. Other seed uh, fell amongst the thorns. And as it grew, the thorns grew up with it and choked out the seed and it died. But other seed fell on good soil and produced grain a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. And Jesus explained that parable to his disciples. And he said, the seed is the word of God. And the different types of soil along the path and the rocky ground and the thorny ground and the good soil represent people's hearts and the word of God being sown into their hearts. And the seed of God's word can be snatched from along the path, so to speak. And Jesus said, that's the work of the devil. He comes and he snatches away the word of God. Where there's shallow soil, boy, it can spring forth and bring forth a, a quick growth. But when trial and, and temptation and hardship come, whew, the heat of life scorches it and it dies. Or the seed thorn among, sown among the thorns can represent one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out and it's unfruitful. But the seed that's sown on the good soil represent, represents the one who, who hears the word and understands the word and the word bears fruit in their life and at various levels, 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. See, the word of God is not just a milk, it's seed. Peter said it's imperishable seed. And you are God's garden. In Corinth, Paul planted seed, the seed of God's word. Apollos came along and he watered it. Uh, but they did not give the seed life. The ability to grow and produce was inherent in the seed itself and God made it grow. And Peter said, you have been born again, not of perishable, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. You're God's garden. He's cultivating you. He's looking for a harvest and everything depends on how you receive the seed of his word in your life. And what's the condition of your heart? That's the question. 
What is the, is it, is it rocky? Is it thorny? Is it trampled down like a path? Or and you ever have those weeks where you feel like the Lord went into the shed and fired up the rototiller? Made a few passes? Maybe you had one. You know, that's a good thing. Because that means he's going to plant seed. You are his garden. And when a field gets plowed, it means something is about to be planted. And so Paul says, man, guys, let's move from immaturity into maturity. Recognize your God's garden. He says in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Second picture here, second metaphor, God's building. In his desire to move them towards maturity, he says, you're God's building. So he shifts from agriculture to architecture. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as one through fire. Paul said, I laid the foundation. What is the foundation of the church? It's Jesus Christ. Paul did not build a church founded on human principles. Paul did not build a church or lay a foundation built on human schemes or marketing gimmicks. The foundation upon which Paul built the church was Jesus Christ. He said, I came to you. I wanted to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And that's what I proclaim. It was the church was born as a work of the spirit. I'm reminded in Matthew chapter 16 again, where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded to Jesus and he, and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, I, I imagine he had a big smile on his face when Peter said that. And we talked about this last week. Oh, my father in heaven revealed that to you. A, a spiritual revelation from the Holy Spirit. But Jesus also said this in response to Peter. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Not talking about Peter. Peter is not the foundation for the church. Talking about the confession that Peter made. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the hope. You are the promised one. Jesus is the foundation upon which the church is built. And so Paul says, as the foundation's been laid... We must be careful that we build properly upon the foundation. And he gives us a whole list of things that someone might build with. You know, and I would say this, the true church is not some moral crusade. The true church is 
not built around some political ideology. The true church is not built on the foundation of social responsibility. The church is built on a person, Jesus Christ. Our hero, our savior, our friend, our king, he is the foundation for the church. And we must build upon that. Every day, you know, we, we build upon Christ. And the question is, what, what, are we, what are we building? And so Paul describes these different types of materials that people build with. He says gold, silver, precious stones. You think about those things, those are costly things, expensive things, things that are rare, things that are hard to find, things that are... Um, not just hard to find, but hard to ob- obtain. And um, they're valuable. Paul also said this, people build with wood, they build with hay, they build with straw. I'm reminded of the three little pigs. <laughs> uh, things that are passing and they're temporary and they're ordinary and they're cheap and they're, they're easy to obtain and they're consumed with fire. Whereas gold and silver and precious stones, I mean, they survive fire. Fire even purifies them. You know, the book of Proverbs presents the, wisdom, the relationship between the wisdom of God and the word of God, similar to what we've been talking about here this morning. The, the word of, uh, Solomon presented the word of God as a treasure. His wisdom is a treasure that we should seek. And it's interesting. He uses these same pictures of gold, silver, and precious stones. Let me read to you some examples. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13 to 15. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain of her is better than gain from silver. And her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. That's wisdom from God. In Proverbs chapter 2, he said this, my son, if you receive my words, so he speaks of the word as gold, silver, and precious, not only is it seed, not only is it milk, it's gold, it's silver, it's precious stone in the kingdom of God. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments, with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and if you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. Proverbs chapter 8, Solomon said this, Take my instruction instead of silver. Speaking of the word of God, take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. You know, like I said earlier, Paul's had much to say in regards uh, to wisdom in the first few chapters of this letter. And the church in Corinth, was trying to build upon Christ with the wisdom of man. You know, with, hey, we're of Paul, we're of Apollos, we're into this preacher. They, you know, I think they had their star preachers and whatever they, they put on the show. And they should have been depending upon the wisdom of God as it is found in the word of God. 
Jesus is the wisdom of God. And, you know, Paul says, one day, your work, my work, the Corinthian work will be put through a fire at the judgment seat. It's referred to in your Bible as the day. It's capitalized. The Bema seat. When the eyes of Jesus, whom is described in Revelation, that our fire will search all things and purify all things. And the wood and the hay and the, the straw, the stubble in our lives will burn up. And the, the gold and the silver and the precious jewels will be tested with fire. And that which survives will be rewarded. And that which is consumed will be consumed. And it, it's quite the picture to consider that, that Paul says, if your work is burned up, you'll suffer loss and you'll come into the kingdom of God like a person escaping out of a burning house. You ever think about your house burning down? I mean, God forbid that happens. You think, man, what am I going out with? I always think, man, if that happens, I always assume it'll be at night and it'll be like, whoa, I'm going out there and I'm in my pajamas and there's like, what's left? Escape as if with nothing. And Paul is saying to this church that, that is uh, developmentally delayed and in spiritual infancy, he says, guys, you're God's building. You are, God, you are God's building and you've got to pay attention to what you're building with. Are you living for fleshly, carnal, cheap things, wood, hay, and stubble, and straw that will not last eternity? Or are you building into your life things that are eternal? Gold, silver, and precious jewels. What are you using? What are you building, church? Your God's garden. Your God's building. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The three pictures, God's garden, God's building, and now God's temple, he says to them. You are God's temple. It's not just a metaphor. It's a reality. And the word there, the Greek word that is translated uh, temple in our Bibles is not speaking of the temple in its entirety. You know, the outer court, the inner court, this, that, the, 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 the whole temple. It's very specific and it is speaking of the holy of holies, the inner place, the most holy place, the place where the glory of God dwelt in that old temple. The place where when the priest went in there once a year, the Shekinah glory of God was something that was visible and tangible and presence, present and, and could be seen, the presence of God. And Paul says, you are God's temple. You know, when I think about this verse, I, I was telling the worship team this this morning. When I thought about this verse, I've always thought about it on an individual basis. You I am God's temple. You are God's temple. But interesting, Paul here is not speaking to individuals. He speaks plurally to the church. He says, you together are God's temple. The body of Christ. 
comprises uh, the holy of holies, the place where the glory of God, the church, is to dwell in all of its weight, in all of its glory, where God is to be experienced and, and perceived and enjoyed by his people. See, we're not, we're not just a structure. We're the church. We are the place where God's presence dwells and lives. What an, it's an amazing thing. We are the dwelling place of God. We're the place where God wants to reveal his power and where his presence can be seen. And Paul says this, boy, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. That word, I mean, that, that's a pretty serious warning. But the word destroy does not mean come to an end of existence, annihilation. It means destroyed in this sense. They will be diminished. If anyone messes with God's temple, he will diminish them. Meaning that their ability to know the Lord, their ability to walk with the Lord, uh, their ability to be used by the Lord will decrease because God is very protective of his temple. God protects his church. Now, always the bride. God says, you mess with my bride, you mess with me and I'll diminish you. The church is his bride. And so, you know, Paul, Paul is saying to this immature church, look, look, if you want to defile the body, you know, subtly or overtly, and you want to cause division and you want to pull people towards yourself or towards this party or this faction or this argument, what you will find is, is that God will diminish you as you try to pull people away from the body. Paul says, God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. He's told us this already in this letter, that we're holy. We're saints. We're the sanctified of God, his church. You know, I think about Moses and, well, well the question, what does it mean to be holy? And Moses in that famous encounter from Exodus at the burning bush where he meets the Lord and the Lord says to him, what? Take off your shoes, your sandals, because this is holy ground. Even Joshua at, uh, before, the, I was going to say the battle of Jericho. It's not really a battle. Uh, the destruction of Jericho. Uh, when he had his encounter with the angel of the Lord, same thing. Take off your shoes. Take off your sandals. You know, I think about uh, holy ground and that removal of, of the shoes. It, it's like, man, you're coming in the presence of God. Let's, let's leave the mud outside. Let's leave the dirt outside. And now you come through the blood of Christ into the most holy place. You know, the, the shoes, the sandals, you know, represent all that carries you through this world. 
You take off your human efforts and you come into my presence. You take off that which carries you in this world and you come to me by the blood of Jesus and enjoy my presence. That's another picture of the shoes, taking them off, you know. When you go to someone's house, you know that. You take your shoes off. It, it, it's, it, you, because you, you want to make yourself at home. You know, when you, you, you want to be comfortable you want to relax. Take your shoes off and come in to my house. And, and so God says, you're, you're my temple. My presence is with you. I, I want you to see my glory and my power and watch me work. And not destroy the temple with your, your jealousy and your strife, but to learn to come into my presence and leave the mud behind, you know. You know, this morning, I, I just had something from the Lord, which was, which was nice. It was this, like just two seconds before we went to start the service. I, I just turned around and I watched you guys for a second. And I thought, God's garden. It's so beautiful to watch the people of God just mingling, hanging out, visiting with each other, loving on one another, hearing how your week was. Oh, we leave the mud outside. We come in and we take our shoes off and we find comfort and experience the presence of, of God. We are God's garden, God's building, God's temple. But in Corinth, where they were immature and there was division in the body, Paul wanted them to move on. And so, he just winds up with three quick exhortations to this divided body. Verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. That's one of the things about maturity or immaturity. You know, so many times I feel like I'm 19. Then I look in the mirror. You know, Lisa and I have been running lately and if I'm tired, boy, that old left knee, it just acts up. I say, sorry, honey, you're going to have to go on without me. It's time for me to start walking. This is to be realistic about the condition of the knee. And Paul says, let no one deceive himself. If any of you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written... He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So stop deceiving yourself. That means this, stop, you know, pumping your tires and extolling yourself. Stop singing the praises of yourself. Be realistic about where you're at with the Lord. You know, thinking that you alone have all the deep insights into the things of God. Time to look in the mirror. God is not impartial. He does not pick favorites. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He says, you, you need to leave your worldly wisdom and become a fool in a sense for that you may become wise. Verse 21, stop extolling yourself. So let no one boast in men. Here's the second one. Let no one boast in men. Stop exalting others. Be realistic about yourself and be realistic about other people. He says, for all things are yours, whether Paul 
or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or future. Don't boast in men. Stop exalting others. What you've received and what they have received, they've received from Christ. You know what? At the pools of Bethsaida, Jesus met a man who'd been lame in his leg for 38 years in his legs. And Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well. And, and the man said to Jesus, man, when the, wa- when the water is stirred, they had kind of this belief that when the water was stirred, there was an angel present and they could be healed. And so he, he said, when the water stirred, I have no one to help me get to the water so that I can be healed. And Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? And he said, I have no one to help me. Which is an interesting picture when you think about it, because who's he looking at as he says, I have no one to help me? Jesus. And so often we do that in our faith. Ah, where's my help? Lord says, I'm right here. I'm trying to look you in the eyes. My son, Eli, I was just, we were laughing about him last night. Can I tell a funny story, anybody? When he was little, he'd say, Eli, look me in the eyes. Look me in the eyes. Jesus is right there. Right there. And we need to look him in the face. The answer to our problems is right in front of us. And the answer is not in a man. But the man. Christ. Stop exalting others. Boast in Jesus. Look to the Lord. And then in verse 22... All are, your, all are yours. In other words, inclusive. Stop excluding people. In their party spirit, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. All are yours. You are Christ and Christ is God. You are his garden, his building, his temple. And to deny access, to have that party Spirit that's leading to excluding people and saying we're of this group and we're of that group. You're one body. You're one church. You're one temple. All are yours. There's great freedom in that. Liberty. One author said, all are yours. That's liberty. And then he said, and you are Christ. That's responsibility. We need both. We are God's garden, God's building, God's temple. And I, I love 1 Corinthians chapter 3 because it tells us this. It's time to mature. It's time to move on from infancy into manhood, so to speak. To move on from immaturity into maturity. To move on from being a baby in Christ to being a disciple of Christ. To being a laborer for the kingdom. You belong to him. You belong to him his garden, his building, his temple, and and to live for carnal things when you can live for eternal things? What a waste. What What a missing out when you can live for the king. Where's garden? What is the condition of your heart, the soil of your heart? Where his building What are you building with? We are his temple. Man, that we should learn to take our shoes off and leave the mud outside 
and learn to get comfortable in His presence. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come.